Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jones, Bowden, he's got it, England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket and we're focusing on test cricket this week because, well, fascinating test series in progress of course in Australia with India managing to hold out for a draw in the third test match in Sydney, England about to start their test series in Sri Lanka and also in the second half of this programme we've got Ian Bell talking about test cricket and interestingly he's worked with some young players, young England players and is very optimistic about their attitude to test cricket. So this is the test cricket episode I suppose you'd say of the analyst inside cricket. Simon uh, you've been kind of watching all the the, the progress in Australia like me. Actually the Australians haven't covered themselves in glory really in this test match given that Firstly, it looked as if they were going to win it. They didn't. And, you know, one or two sort of uh, things simmering around, like sledging and stuff, has meant that their reputation has been slightly tarnished. Shall we start with the cricket first? We had a text message yeah. exchange after two days of the match in which we both said, game's over, isn't it? Australia are going to win this. You could just see them squeezing the life out of India as the match went on. And actually, the game went pretty much as we expected until the final day. Remarkable day's cricket, really. 230-odd for three India. I mean, I, I gave them no chance of, of holding out for the final day. They've, they've had injuries, and you know, Jadeja's got a, a, a cracked thumb, uh, and they, they they were missing Kohli. You just felt that everything was going Australia's way. Fifth-day pitch as well, Nathan Lyon, and lo and behold, what a way to save a game as well. They saved the game to start with by attacking Rishabh Pant, in at number five, absolutely scintillating innings. It was a shame he missed out on 100. And then the big block in the final session. I mean, the remarkable thing is at one stage, India, had sort of, you know, you felt they sort of had an outside chance of winning, but then they lost those two quick wickets. And then it was all about defending and, and hanging on to what they got. And, and it sets up a fantastic final match in Brisbane now. It's been a brilliant series. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I'm like you, I was surprised, you know, I didn't actually watch the final day, having watched very closely the first four days, and because uh, I was thinking, well, it's, a, it's, it's an obvious conclusion, Australia are going to just blow India away, given their injuries and so on, and, and the fact that it's a full fifth day pitch and the bowlers were looking supreme. So I'm, you know, I was shocked actually that the Indians managed to hold on and really admire their 
tenacity and, and dedication. And you, you make the point about Rishad Pant being aggressive. And often that is the best way, isn't it? If, you, if you're trying to defend, if you, if you just get locked into just mere defence, the bowlers can be all over you. So to have a player like that who can show flair and, and you know panache and aggression and take the attack to the bowlers, it's always incredibly off-putting uh, for, for bowlers in the end. I mean, I, I, I was going to say in this podcast today that I think this Australian bowling attack are almost as good as the West Indies of the sort of, say, Ambrose and Walsh era because... Cummins and, and Hazelwood in particular, I think are they're some of the best bowlers Australia have ever produced. They are relentless in their line and length and their aggression and their persistence and their hostility. And they don't rely on moving the ball really very much in the same way, funnily enough, as Ambrose and Walsh didn't. Ambrose and Walsh, tall, obviously quite fast, not 95 miles an hour, but around the mid-80s sort of miles an hour. But they just were relentless in their approach and gave the batsman nothing to hit. And, and that actually is almost more important than wicket-taking, is how do you score off these guys, Cummins and Hazelwood, bowling that 87, 88 mile an hour, back of a length, at-off stump and roundabout, what, fourth and fifth stump area. It's very hard to score. You've got to be able to play off the back foot. And there is an element of risk in playing shots off the back foot, especially the pull and the hook. So it, 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 you know, those bowlers are really, really difficult to uh, to undermine, to get on top of. Cummings at the moment, you know, no wonder he's the, the top ranked bowler in the world because he, he just keeps coming, doesn't he? I mean, he he seems like a machine. He's like Roadrunner. You know, he just keeps on pounding in and and producing that that relentless line and length and the odd absolute peach. But he doesn't rely on swinging the ball. And what's quite interesting, I think, about that is you don't get many bowlers who uh, who can keep going endlessly without experimenting a bit. You know, uh, the, the Andersons and the Broads, you know, are they're flare bowlers, really. You know, they don't just bowl line and length, line and length relentlessly. They try and swing the ball or they try and move the ball. Or they try and cut the ball or, you know, they try and do something to in a way, keep bowling interesting. Because actually, just running up and bowling line and length relentless is quite boring, really. Well, at least I, when I ever attempted to do it, I thought it was boring. And the only person that England have had who was absolutely brilliant at that was Angus Fraser, who had that mindset where he would just run up and bowl the same ball over and over and over again. And he didn't worry about swing or you know, trying to fiddle around with the seam or anything like that. He just bowled the same ball over and over again and enough times that eventually batsmen got out. But you do need a certain mindset to be able to, to do that. And at the moment, Australia are lucky that they have both Hazelwood and Cummins who have that mindset, who have that complete focus. It's like a sort of myopia almost. This is what we're going to do and nothing else. And it's incredibly effective and you know, hats off to India for overcoming it. Oh, no doubt about that. Hazelwood in this fourth innings, 26 overs, 12 maidens, two for 39, just underlying that sort of relentless nature of his bowling. Uh, Cummings is the leading wicket taker in the series. 26 overs, six maidens, one for 72, went to, you know, 2.77 runs per over. 
brilliant resistance from India. I think perhaps we should talk about Nathan Lyon. Now, something you said in one of the earlier podcasts talking about this series is one of the problems for India, all right-handers, and I knew exactly what you meant, but of course, if you're an off-break bowler on the final day in, in Sydney and the ball's just giving offering a little bit, it wasn't ragging, not, not by any means, you actually want some left-handers to bowl that. Well, he did have one left-hander to bowl that, and that was apparently was smashing down the ground, but the rest were right-handers. Lyon in the series has taken six wickets in 128 overs. Compare that with Ashwin, 12 wickets in 134 overs. So the Lion is, you know, you mentioned the pace bowlers, but they rely so much on Lion as well, don't they? He's closing in on 400 wickets, but he's not been that effective in this test series. And of course, he did not win Australia the match in the final innings, which I think a lot, perhaps a lot of people would expect him to come up with a 4 5 on the final day in Sydney. 46 overs, 17 maidens, two for 114. And India, who's very used to playing spin, of course, they were able to, to see him off. There were some drop catches. Tim Payne dropped three catches. Perhaps that was the reason why you know, the frustration began to tell. In the end, there was a, an altercation with, with Ashwin, where he called Ashwin a dickhead. Well, I, I just think that's totally unacceptable. It's yeah. totally unacceptable. Payne it's pathetic, it. really. It's pathetic. It is. it is. Payne started it as well. That's, that's the other thing. He said, oh, we can't, can't wait to get you to Brisbane, Ash. And, and Ashwin responded by saying, well, I can't wait to get you back to India because that will be your last test series. And then, you know, he said, oh, you're a selector now, aren't are you? Or something like that. And then he you know, called him a dickhead. And, then, and Ashwin had to sort of pull away from the crease twice. You just think, oh, come on. I, I mean, I understand that, you know, I understand what you know, it, the series is on the line. It's, a, you know, it's, it's hot. It's a tense last day. Australia were, were frustrated. But doesn't sound great, does it, really? It's unnecessary. And I, I suppose... You know, Ashwin himself has been occasionally a controversial figure, and you all, you all deny this, and so, you know, um, argue this because I'll, I'll say, well, he's he's mancadded people and things. I mean, your your argument will be, yeah, staying your ground. It's not it's not a controversial factor anymore, I suppose. But he's someone who, you know, he he does rub a few players up the wrong way. Well, uh, Payne said, I, no one likes you. Payne said, well, no, no one likes you. At least people funnily like enough, you, I love Ashwin, you. actually. He's, a, he's the most fascinating guy. I'm, I've got a great deal of time for him, actually. And I found him, he's given us time on this podcast yeah. himself and yeah. talked fascinatingly about the art of spin. Uh, I just think that, that there's this sort of cultural divide, isn't there, between the Indians and the Australians. and They've never got on terribly well, really. And I guess the Australians are still seething from that series that India won two years ago in Australia. Uh, and they're desperate to try and reverse that memory, but it's just—it's pathetic, really, from Payne. And I, I thought he was—I thought he was above that kind of thing, actually. Last series between them, the banter between him and, say, Rishabh Pant was quite entertaining, but this has got slightly unsavoury and and personal. It doesn't paint the Australians in a good light at all. Well, he was supposed to be the man that will come in and sort of change the culture, but it—you'd it, it, actually talk about that sort of. Uh, conflict between sort of Indian cricket culture and Australian cricket culture. And I think within Indian cricket culture, there's that feeling that I, they just don't. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of chat on the field, but I don't think they understand that that, that sort of the need for you know, force sledging in in the same way. I think they they're sort of perplexed by it really. Uh, anyway, it, it it it's a small thing that happened, a relatively small thing that happened at the end of a of a compelling Test match, and it's been a 
a brilliant series. I think we should also talk about as well the the abuse on the boundary edge for Mohammed Siraj again, you know, just disgraceful. Um, yeah. That that will that will play out over the course of time, and um, we'll, we'll get to know more and more about it and what will happen to the people who were in, involved in it. But come on, go, go, for goodness sake, go go to the ground and respect the players who are playing. Well, you just hope, don't you, that um, people can people who do that can be ejected from the ground and uh, not allowed to come back ever again. And there's enough listening devices and, and you know, obviously cameras and stuff around now that it's probably possible to identify the people who, uh, the, the perpetrators of that. Okay, Oz, what about the rest of the series? One match to go, Brisbane, which is Australia's fortress, isn't it? I mean, they like to play the first test match there. Do you think that gives them a, a significant advantage to, to play the game there? I mean, do, do you still see them winning the series? I mean, in, India have confounded all predictions, I think, in this series. You know, Cody going home, 36 all out, came back to win in Melbourne, and they you know, they hung on superbly in this test match, really. I mean, I thought they were done. So did you. So where do you see the series now, then? Well, I do think Australia will win it still uh, because of the, the supreme ability of their bowlers, compared to India, who have got two debutants, or virtual debutants, who did actually pretty well, Saini and Siraj. I mean, they were both impressive, but they're not in the same class as, as Hazelwood or, or or Cummins or Stark. So I think that the Indian bowling attack is, is weaker, clearly. And also, the likelihood is they'll be missing Jadeja, mm. who not only has a big influence with the ball, but also made crucial runs in the first innings of the third test as well. So and he, and he, and also he ran out Steve Smith. Don't forget that. You know, just when they were talking about who's the most brilliant fielder in the world, is it Ravi Jadeja? He surges in from deep square leg, picks the ball up one-handed, and hurls down the stumps with one to aim at, and runs Steve Smith out. So he will be presumably that he's broken his thumb. He presumably will be missing, and that'll be a big loss. So I think the balance of power is with Australia. But you can't write India off. Well, I think that's the lesson of the series, isn't it? The other side of it, though, the odds is that Australia got problems of their own. Will Pekoski died in the field today, hurt his shoulder. He went off for a scan, so there must be a doubt about his participation in the Brisbane Test match. And David Warner's fitness, question marks as well. I mean, he just didn't look quite right in this Test match on on and off the field. So he's got fitness problems as well. So it it may well be that Australia have to change the top of their order again and the other thing well you know they, they have just come through 131 tough overs and there's quite a short switch around between that game and the next game I mean they you know that that should be fine if they want the, the big three quick bowlers to play again but you know there's that issue as well possibly for Australia but, but all eyes all eyes on Brisbane I say all eyes on Brisbane of course we're going to be focusing on uh, on Gaul and the first test between England and Sri Lanka which starts on Thursday morning at half past four in the morning uh, but the India Australia series has really captured the imagination I think mm. yeah and the uh, Gaul sort of circumstances the pitch and everything a slight contrast to Brisbane of course Brisbane will be fast and bouncy no doubt and Gaul will be slow and low with with some spin so really it's going to be how do England approach that test match do they pick the three spinners it sounds like a debut for Dan Lawrence in the middle order, uh, as well as obviously Johnny Bairstow playing because of the absence of Ben Stokes and Ollie Pope being injured still. So uh, and and Zach Clawley up to the top of the order, and um, it will be a fascinating opportunity actually. I mean, England 
obviously come into this game a little uncertain because of firstly their lineup and secondly availability of people. Moen Ali ruled out because of his quarantine. Chris Wokes probably marginal as well because he had to quarantine for for a certain length of time and has only had a couple of days outside before the Test match. So you know England's lineup is a little uncertain, but so is Sri Lanka's, and they've come back to, from South Africa reeling from a very heavy two-test defeat with not many players covering themselves in glory. So their uh, top order and you know spin attack and so on is probably pretty uncertain as well. So it's going to be it's going to be quite hard to predict that series. But I sort of feel. England, with the the, the the range of talent they've got and the versatility in their attack, if they pick a Sam Curran and uh, obviously Jack Leach and, and Don Bess, they've got lot, lots of options there. Yeah, no Burns, no Pope, no Stokes, no Archer, no Moen Alley, we think, and no Chris Wokes, possibly, for that game for England. There's six players missing. What are we looking at as a team then? I'm thinking Sibley, Crawley... Bairstow at three, Root, Lawrence, that seems to be the, the word that Lawrence is going to play, as you say. Butler, Sam Curran at seven, Bess at eight, and then you've got Leach, who's got to play, and then you've got one, two of the quick bowlers, so England playing three and two. If There's no Mo and Ali, there's no other option as far as spin's concerned. They've got uh, spinners in, in the backup party, but they're not in the, in the main squad. So it's going to be two from Broad, Anderson... Wood and Stone. So we're back to that. Can Broad and Anderson play together again? Will they play again uh, together? They did in the last Test match that England played. So presumably they will. I don't. What 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 do they do? Do they play Broad and Anderson, or do they do they look they look for someone with some extra pace? Yeah, I think you need extra pace uh, as a variety. And that goal pitch is pretty dead, isn't it? But it will reverse there. So I think Wood is the best option. And uh, so they have Broad or Anderson, whoever looks the most likely. Maybe one plays one test and one plays the other or something. Uh, and then they've got Cap- Sam Curran to bowl left arm over and create a bit of rough for Don Bess as well. Uh, I- I'd be inclined to go with that combination. Curran, Anderson or Broad and Wood. And then you've got pace, you've got swing and, and seam and sort of artistry and you've got left arm over bustling imagination and versatility. So... You know, you've got a good combination there. As for Sri Lanka, we don't quite know what they are going to come up with. They had big fitness issues in the Centurion Test match. They actually had four injuries during the same game. Mickey Arthur saying, with you know, with the biosecure bubbles and things like that, you know, players are just not able to get bowlers, particularly not able to get match fit. And so, you know, he's talking about having substitutions. He's saying they should they should look at it. Um, but anyway, that won't happen uh, in the short term. But you know, that, what will will happen is that. In South Africa, their attack was mainly seam dominated. They did play the leg spinner Hasaranga, so presumably he will stay in the side, but they can bring back some of their spinners in those conditions that suit them much better and are much more used to in Gaul. And just having a look at Sri Lanka in Gaul, they've won 19 of the 33 test matches they've played there. They've, they've lost eight, 11 tests since a draw in Gaul. So, yeah, you do feel it's going to go one way or the other. Last time England were there, they won the Test match in Gaul by 211 runs. They did win three tosses as well, which you know you often feel in subcontinental conditions is a good thing. You have to you have to get the runs on the board, of course, in the first innings. Otherwise, what happens is you get a low score, then the other opposition get a big score, and then you end up battling to save the game in the third innings. 
The other thing about the series as well, last time, only 11 wickets of the 111 that went to bowlers went to pace. So spin dominated. Um, will they change it this time? Will the pitches spin a bit less? They spun a lot, they spun a lot last time so that England spinners were brought into it. There's no Rashid this time. I think it's going to be quite an interesting series, actually. I, I, I think you feel that Sri Lanka. I mean, they they got clearly in South Africa. They showed that, uh, you know, they that they're not a great side. Although they did have those injury problems against the South African side, which we you know which we've looked at and we don't think are a great side. But I don't know. I think it could be quite a testing series for England. They haven't had that great deal of preparation. Uh, Josh Butler talking about you know the, the preparation they had in in Loughborough on the virtual cricket club but it's nothing quite like being out there in Sri Lanka we both know how hot it is out there the conditions are sapping Joss Butler's been talking about that in the last few days England a bit underprepared Sri Lanka in their home conditions um, I don't know it's gonna be, I think it's going to be a really interesting series Right, now last week we had Ian Bell in the Virtual Cricket Club as our guest and we're going to hear a little bit of of him in a minute talking about his work with some of the young England players that are coming through the system. And by the way, I should mention this Thursday, the 14th of January, we have Andrew Strauss as our guest in the Virtual Cricket Club. Should I say Sir Andrew Strauss? who's uh, coming to us all the way from Barbados, actually, where I think he's holidaying at the moment. But he's going to talk to us about the influence he's had on English cricket, both as captain, batsman and, of course, administrator over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, You can go to the Virtual Cricket Club. You can join us by going to worldsbestcricketclub.com. And Strauss is our guest on Thursday. But Ian Bell was interesting. Um, And here's a fact for you, by the way. Uh, England haven't won an Ashes without Ian Bell in the side since 1986, 34 years. So it's quite a he's got quite a, a a record in Ashes series. Perhaps he was lucky that he came through the system just when that brilliant Australian team of the 90s and early 2000s was starting to wane. But he's had a big influence on on the Ashes, and so we we asked him a, a fair bit about that. Interesting character, isn't he, actually, Simon? Because he sort of... You felt, actually, when he was in the England team as a youngster, he did seem like a boy in a man's world. But, obviously, he came through that, matured, played 118 tests in the end, 22 test hundreds, uh, up there with the best ever. And he does speak a good game now. He speaks with great maturity and sense about cricket. Of course, he retired in the summer from playing first-class cricket, he's playing for Warwickshire in the summer, call it a day, and his, his focus now, it seems, is going to be on coaching. The, the Covid situation is, is not great for anyone in, in the cricket world in a way, because you, there's so much uncertainty around and how much finance is there going to be in the game, how much opportunity is there going to be to, to make your way in the game, both as a player and as a coach. One thing about Ian Bell, of course, he, he, he always felt he was sort of earmarked to, to play for England, there, there was talk, wasn't there? Oh, this young lad Ian Bell, he's he's a great technician. He's one for the future. He's going to play for England, and there, that brings its own pressure, really, from a young age, because there are lots of players who you know are talked of quite glowingly at eighteen, nineteen, twenty, who don't make it, and there's other players who are not really regarded at twenty years of age. You you know go on to have uh, tremendous careers, and he, he talked about that. But what a fabulous player for England! He's also you talk about his Test match runs. He was also the third highest scorer in one-day cricket for England as well. And at one stage, he was top of the list. He went past 
Paul Collingwood. So uh, there's a wealth of experience there, and I think that's what he's trying to do, isn't he? He's trying to, uh, that's, and that's how the ECB and the England setup are, are using him. They're trying to use that experience to, to help the younger players. Yeah, actually, um, it, it, it's interesting you mentioned about his one-day career because, of course, he was in that 2015 World Cup team that was such a dismal failure, and he was one of the people sort of jettisoned after that that then uh, England obviously turned the tables and became the the best one-day team in the world. And he's quite honest about it uh, in, in his Virtual Cricket Club interview, which you can see... If you go to the Analyst YouTube channel, that the whole interview is there, actually, and he talks with quite great uh, honesty about how he England were playing a sort of brand of one-day cricket from the, the dark ages in the 2015 era, and you know he kind of takes part of the blame for that, that they didn't move on quickly enough. But going back to the present day, he's been working with the under-19 England players over the last couple of winters, and he's just spent some time with the latest batch in the marquee at Loughborough. So we asked him what he discovered. Up until Christmas again, because it's been elite sport. Uh, you know, I've been at Loughborough probably three times a week with the young Lions. The next programme, actually, a lot of those guys from the World Cup and that season have gone into first-class cricket. The likes of Jordan Cox and Kent and Jack Haynes have done, you know, fantastically well this year, which was really pleasing to see. And we've had a new crop come in, again, preparing. They were meant to have a tour to Australia this April, but again, I think that's looking very doubtful at the moment. But um, you know, we started the, I suppose, uh, the next batch of young players coming into that um, that program, which again I've really enjoyed. Probably had seven or eight like three day camps at, at Loughborough, which has been enjoyable. Everyone's always fascinating. You know, who are the next generation? Who are the next young players? Who are the good young players? I mean, is is there anyone you're talking about the under 19s? I suppose it might be difficult for you because it puts pressure on players at a young age or perhaps that might be a good thing but yeah. is there anyone or who who seems outstanding who we should look out for or you know a, a name or two from that program previously that all the winter just gone you know there was there's a number of um, outstanding batters in particular but I think the one thing I was I wasn't sure going into the program certainly with young lads now was do they want to play test cricket do they want to play t20 where was it but what I found actually quite reassuring and that is all of them, every single one wanted to play test match cricket, which, again, I, I was really pleased when obviously we left that winter. Yes, they, they all play all the modern day shots, but test match cricket was still where these guys wanted to go. Yeah, and I don't want to lump too much pressure on young players, but there was some good. I think Jack Haynes from Worcester, uh, even as a Warwickshire man, um, lovely technique. Looks like he could become a very fine player. I know at the moment for Worcester, he keeps getting 50 and out, but I'm sure there's a big hundred. Hopefully next season for him and he can really kick on. Jordan Cox, again, we, he burst on the scene with a big double hundred and he keeps wicket as well. So he's somebody to really keep an eye on, real talent. You've got Ben Charlesworth as well at Gloucester, opening batsman uh, and bowls. Um, his bowling's been limited purely, again, growth and injuries while young, but he's another player to keep an eye on. And, and uh, Dan Mousley at Warwickshire, who scored 100 against Sri Lanka in the World Cup, um, another talented young player um, so there was a number actually in that group uh, but it was just so pleasing to see actually one of the benefits probably from uh, the, the shortened season and, the, and and Covid was the amount of young players who were given opportunities because counties weren't mm. having overseas players. It was over 30 wasn't there actually yeah, who made so, their debut yeah. Yeah so it's absolutely that, that from that point of view is great and actually part of me quite likes the fact that for a year or two, we've got rid of relegation for a little bit, which I think will give county coaches opportunity or a bit more confidence to play younger players. 
rather than worry about getting relegated or being mm. pushed to get promoted. So I think it will give a little bit of opportunity to get younger players a longer run in the side rather than worry about maybe, um, like I said, the shorter, um, uh, the short-term goals of promotion or, or relegation. Any young spinners? Um, yes. I mean, I, I was really actually on the programme we've got now, there's actually three 17-year-olds that actually all bowl fantastic spin. And also they, they'd probably be top six batters in there within this under-19 programme as well. So obviously there's a lad called Jacob Bethel, who's actually a Bayesian lad, actually, but he's in the Warwickshire setup. He's at rugby school, very talented young player. Um, there's a young lad called Rayhan Ahmed, who's only 16 from, from Leicester, a leg spinner and real attacking um, batsman, real, ta- real talented, um, somebody that really, when I first saw him, uh, was really impressed with just the ability. Reminded me actually when I saw Moen Ali as a very, very young age, that natural ability of hitting a cricket ball, but also being able to bowl leg spin with a good wrong and at 16, 17, and the pace he bowls at as well. Um, is impressive and um, I forgot the young lad's name who made his debut for Sussex this year as well uh, who's in that as well he's only 16 as well um, again both beautiful left arm spin um, his name will come to me in a minute but there's yeah there's a number of actually young spinners actually in the program right now actually that look very exciting well that's I mean that's really encouraging isn't it because you, when you we've, you know, we've done a lot of, about spin on the on the virtual cricket club we had Jack Leach in and we've had Graham Swan in and there's that sort of, you know, with England going to Sri Lanka and then to India, there's always that sort of scratching ahead who, who, are, who are going to be the bowlers that are going to take the wickets, who are going to be the spinners of the future as well. So, I mean, that is extremely encouraging. Yours. I'm Sorry, really... the young lad from Sussex is Coles. He made his debut, I think, against Surrey this year at 16. But he, yeah, another fantastic cricketer, yeah. Yeah. You, you've been through that experience yourself of being a young player, being kind of earmarked for England at quite a young age. Yeah. What can you... Or how can you help the next generation get get ready for that? What what kind of things do you pass on? What bits of advice do you you pass on to them? Yeah, well, I think certainly um, in the short period of time. So when you're with a camp at Loughborough, you, you only get you don't get every day with them or a long period of time. You're only in a small camp, so I certainly haven't fo- over focused technical with these lads at all. It's just really trying to give them an idea of what the highest level is about. So we we do work a lot on playing quick bowling. What are your options about can you score off the back foot when you're playing um, top quality bowling? If you've got someone like Cummins in Australia and in Australian conditions, how are you going to be successful? How are you going to score? What are your options? So we talk a lot about that. Um, and again, it's not for me to tell them how to do it, 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 it in terms of it's they've got to find their method, which is successful and, and everyone can be different. And then obviously we talk a lot about playing spin and, and world class spin. Um, one, being able to rotate the strike. I mean, the best players in the world can rotate the strike comfortably. Being confident and comfortable in defence. You know, we'll watch the guys in Sri Lanka now. The ones that will play well will be comfortable in defending the ball with short legs, silly points. And then having your boundary options, you're attacking. So we talk, we try and talk a lot about those two extremes, really. You know, and I think if you're going to play at the highest level, you've got to be able to deal with genuine pace and you've got to be able to deal with the best spinners in the world and the bits in the middle, they'll find their own way uh, along their journey. But that they're the kind of areas we try and focus on. But I, again, I try and, whether it was at Warwickshire or in this, you know, try and think of the mistakes I made. And if there's any way I can help these lads not make the same mistakes that I did, then hopefully they, they make these steps a little bit quicker and a bit easier than maybe I did. So can you think of a, 
an example of that? I mean, can you cast your mind back to to what you felt at the time, you know, 2021, yeah. and the sort of the old mistake that you made that you can help them uh, yeah, well, avoid? Without a shadow, I think one of my, when I look back at my early days with England, certainly my first Ashes experience, 2005, I think when I look at that series now, I played the individuals more than I played the ball. Mm. You know, I played a lot. Of, there were so many my heroes playing on both sides you know I was 22 23 I was young three test matches in uh, you know that and this was now proper test match cricket and I think it took me a while to 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 understand a half volley is a half volley a bad ball is a bad ball don't play Warren don't play McGrath you know don't over respect them and I think that's the the, the message I've tried to get to these guys is don't like you said, whatever level you play, a half volley is a half volley, a bad ball, a cut ball, a pull, it's all the same and, 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 and be able to see it that way. And we were very lucky actually because Stuart Broads, there's a lot of guys actually prepping to go out. We actually mm. managed to get some of our young lads to actually go and face them in the nets because we had a marquee at Loughborough. Yeah, which yeah. again, that experience, so that kind of lesson that I learned for these lads, right, that is Stuart Broad. He's one of the best we've ever had, if not, mm. you know, him and Jimmy Anderson. Right react it and it, oh, the, the impressive thing for me is actually I think they got we had four batters go through the session I think they got one wicket and any loose ball they got they put away and I, that for me was really important and that was the kind of message I was trying to get on it would be very easy for young lads to say oh my god that's Stuart Broad and you know seize up miss out the half volley or miss out the bad balls that again any of the top bowlers still do and that was really pleasing for me but they're the kind of messages that I try and reiterate all the time to these young guys and b- believe you know believe in their ability and 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 take on top players and I think that was when I look back at my career it took me a little bit of time and and certainly the first time I played Australia I respected them too much and it took a while to get into like I said um, putting pressure back onto the bowler. Coaching has changed in a way hasn't it because you're you're talking about a, a sort of environment which you grew up in where you know there was a certain amount of respect and even kind of slight in, in, intimidation of the best players in the world. Now you're trying to preach this, you know, res- I suppose respect the great players that you might play against, but don't be intimidated by them, and also don't tell people what to do. Um, the, the, the coaching kind of ethos now seems to be, and I, I've talked to Ramps quite a bit about this, seems to be more ask questions of the player, a young player rather than sort of be prescriptive? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the, the, well, the best players end up their own coaches, aren't they? I think whatever era we're talking about, I think the best players, they run their own game because they when they cross the line, whether it's a test match, a first-class game, a T20, they're the ones in control. If you're, I think that if players are coach-led too much, then they're waiting for people to tell them what to do. And I think under pressure, you've got to be your own man. You're looking at coaching as sounding boards. But again, I think that there are different stages, aren't there? I think when you're with young players, you're obviously going to want to help them with their technique, help them with their understanding. There is a certain amount of coaching to do. As the higher you go up, it's you're managing people. You're not going to be telling Joe Root necessarily how to play. You're making sure he's got everything at his disposal to be successful. And if you do see anything, you might point that out. But it's it's different wherever you are coaching, whether it's, like I said, with the England first team or you're down in, in the pathway. So I think you've got to be adjustable as a coach, but I agree that times have changed. But as a coach, like I said, you, you try and build those relationships with players. Again, I look back from a playing point of view, generally, you know, you, you work better with a coach when you had that relationship, don't you? And, and then that coach can be really honest with you. And I think that's the important thing, really. I mean, I've, I look back, I had coaches that 
or the best ones were actually ones that could give me the honest truth from time to time, even though it probably hurt me or it stings a little bit because it's not what you want to hear. But I think then you can actually do something about it. This, the danger is that you don't, you're not honest and you just tell them the stuff they want to hear. But I'm not sure that always makes the top players what they are. One, one thing that fascinates me is, and you're, you're working with young players, is how a player at 17 can be, he's going to be a future superstar. And then someone who's also 17, you think, oh, they're, yeah, they're okay. And then you look at it six years later, yeah. and the one that you sort of, oh, okay, at 17, is, is way ahead of the person who's going to be a superstar. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an absolutely yeah. fascinating thing, that age between about 16 and, and, and 22. Is, is that something that you you know you, you've already seen in your your coaching experience or you would have seen actually during your cricket career actually players yeah. who were really talented at a young age didn't come through and others who were less talented really did come through yeah absolutely I think the um just because some lads don't get England in the 19 doesn't mean they're not going to go on to become a test match cricketer I look at someone like Zach Crawley at the moment I don't think he played a lot of representative cricket for for England at under 19s or any level all of a sudden at 22 he's in the test match side so he's obviously got an amazing work ethic. He's worked on the right things to push himself so, so hard. Even looking at the same age group as me, Jimmy Anderson, I think Jimmy might have played one or two games at under-19s. I know there might have been some injuries as well along the way, but he, again, he didn't play two or three years of England-19s. You know, he played one or two games straight into the Lancashire side, and then he, he obviously took off. You know, it is amazing. Some people will peak at under-19s or 20, and... They won't kick on. Other guys will just be starting their development and, and kicking on from the age of 20, as we said, on in, into the higher um, level of the game. And, and, and is it your job in a way when you're when you're teaching youngsters, coaching youngsters to actually sort of really spell that out to them to say that? I don't know whether you can be quite honest and say, actually, you know, some of you just won't make it. But I, mean, I don't know if that's the sort of message you want to be delivering at that age, or, or you sort of deliver a more positive message, you, know, you have to work hard, you have to do this, that and the other, to give yourself a chance of making it. Um, I think that's the message, you know, the, the, the hard work that it takes. So watching, I mean, the, in, uh, the, these young lads at the moment have had a great opportunity. We've obviously generally worked more on the inside. So the, the, the England first team literally have been training right next door to these lads in the marquee. So they're watching. And again, that, that's an amazing feeling. If you're an under-19, you're seeing the England first team 50 yards away training and it makes it feel like you're not that far away. I think the reality is that you're not going to get there unless you work extremely hard. You can have as much talent as you want in the world, but you've got to be able to put in the hard yards, um, especially watching the way the game is now, especially at the highest level, you know, the physicality of these lads, the way that, you know, you're looking at Butler and Stokes physically, you know, and I think this is where you can really educate these lads early is if you want to be one of those guys, Physically, this is where they are. This is where you are. Now it's up to you to find your way to that. It's the same with, you know, batting and bowling. You're trying to give them an idea of what these guys are doing and where they are. And, and you hope that over time, one or two will really pick that up and they'll be not just doing it when they're with you, but they're doing it on the, by themselves and they're, they're chasing them down. But I think the reality anyway, as we've seen with maybe someone like Crawley, actually getting to the English isn't a million miles away. You know, I think, Zach, I might be wrong, three, four first-class hundreds before getting into the England side. I think maybe if you go 10, 15, to do that would have been, you'd have been banging out a thousand runs consistently a long time in county cricket to get there. I don't think that getting in is as far away as these lads think at the moment. Dom Sibley, I think, again, came to Warwickshire, scored a thousand runs once and is in the England side. So that, that it's not as 
far away as I think these young lads think if they can get the the right things in place. But it, it's um, it's certainly closer. Like I said, they're, they're not a million miles away. So I thought what was encouraging about what Ian Bell was saying there was firstly that young players still want to play test cricket above all, all else. They're not just... Uh, seeing the bright lights of T20 and that's all they want to do is play ramp shots and smack it for six. They do want to play the long game and they do really pride the uh, and treasure the idea of playing Test cricket for England. So that's really encouraging and that will help Test cricket's cause. And also saying that sort of a, la- a lad like Zach Crawley hadn't played England under-19s, hadn't come through the system in quite the same way. So don't give up. If you're a 21-year-old, a 22-year-old, and you haven't been picked up, you might be a late developer, you haven't necessarily played those England Lions or England Under-19 matches, that doesn't mean you can't have a, have a future. Uh, you know, that I think that was good. And that actually, that if you spend time with the other elite players, both young and old, as some of these under-19 players have, you can learn very quickly and progress from under-19 cricket to test cricket relatively quickly, as we've seen with, with some of the young players like Ollie Pope or, or Zach Crawley himself. The other thing as well about coaching, how much do you change a young person's technique? I mean, Ian Bell was talking about sort of the mentality, you know, talking about the mentality of playing, and, but how much do you actually... You know, coach and say no you, you, you actually you can't play a shot like that or you, you, you need to put your foot there or your, your, your back lift needs to be like this I mean, how much do you be dogmatic at, at that age as a, as a coach and say right that, that's got to change otherwise you won't make it, I mean, it, it things are changing a bit aren't they yeah, I think there, there, there are more than you know three ways to skin a cat now aren't there and it, it's Definitely, because of the repertoire and range of styles of players in the modern game, there is less uh, kind of stereotypical uh, accepted norms. I mean, look at look at the Steve Smith. You know how you can't get much madder than his method. And I mean, he hit some shots uh, in the second innings of Australia's game against India in Sydney, where you know terrible kind of from a traditionalist point of view the technique was appalling bat went right out to gully came whirling around in a big circle hardly moved his feet at all hit a virtual half volley off the back foot and you know look we call it caribbean style don't we kind of hitting it on the up through the offside off the back foot almost on one knee and he he gets into strange positions but how successful is he He's, he's just made nearly 200 runs in a test match i mean you know and obviously hasn't had a phenomenal career so I suppose it's good to see players like that prevail because it does show that you don't have to be conventional to be successful. I saw Ashton Turner of the Perth Scorchers play an incredible shot in, in just talking about an orthodox cricket in the in the Big Bash where he actually went for a ramp shot to a la Joss Butler but he fell over like a building going over to his right-hand side and he, st- he still made contact and hit it before. I mean, if you were, if you were a coach watching, say, a, an 18-year-old try that shot and, and that happened, you go, hold on, now we need to try to set up that ramp shot a bit differently, I'm sure. But, but Turner managed to pull it off. I mean, he probably didn't quite mean to play it in that way, but it's it just illustrative of the, of the type of shots that are played and, and it does make you think, you know, how much should you coach, how much should you change in a youngster. Anyway, one thing 
about, about Ian Bell's batting is you uh, as a as a young coach you probably wouldn't want to change a great deal because his technique was was so uh, so good and of course he translated that into a top-class career and a brilliant Ashes series in, in 2013 when he scored three hundreds. You know, I was very lucky to play in seven Ashes. I've seen the highs, the lows, um, individually and as a team. And I think always, like, again, growing up, you want to be that person who wins Man of the Series in an Ashes series. So I think for that year that it happened for me to be Man of the Series was, like I said, it was a dream come true. It's what I wanted, you know, since I was 11, 12, 13 years of age was to effect in Ashes series so to, to have managed to have done that um, you know I'm very very proud of, of those innings and I think for me I mean rightly wrongly I was probably always seen as somebody who looked a nice player but under pressure did I deliver and I think early stages of my career that crit- that, that criticism was quite fair um, I think as I developed one of the biggest days in my career was batting out for a draw at Cape Town where I think I got 75, 80. It wasn't my best innings. It wasn't full of cover drives or cuts or nice play. It was just hard defence, getting through. And I think actually watching Collie do it at Cardiff, I think for the rest of the group, it sort of believed that actually I want to do that one day, not just look good, but I want to be able to be the guy that did that. And I think off the back of that, I think we did it in Auckland as well. Matt Pryor got 100. I think Brody might have got a naught off about 100 balls or something like that so the fact that you can I always wanted not just to look good but actually show that I could do some of that ugly stuff as well so I was really actually some of those innings give me a lot of pleasure as much as uh, of the hundreds as well. I mean the other the fascinating thing about it is you know you played what well over 100 test matches you had that you had that huge high but inevitably that there are the lows there's the spotlight on you I was reading some comments about Johnny Johnny Bairstow today um, in Sri Lanka saying I've got nothing to prove in a way, he still, he sort of has, even after 70 test matches, because he's trying to force his way back into the England side. I mean, that, there's that microscope on you the whole time as a batsman, as an international batsman. How do you deal with those really difficult times? I mean, you had, obviously, you had one, you know, towards the start of your career with the mm. 2005 Ashes. Mm. How, how, you know, people are always sort of giving their opinion, aren't they? And you could be yeah. about the papers and social media now. There's so many opinions around. How do you just keep all that out and focus on trying to be as good as you possibly can be. Yeah, I, I think that's a skill, Simon, as well. I think I genuinely think that's something that is so different to domestic cricket to international cricket. It's not necessarily always the standard that goes up, but the, everything that goes around international cricket, you have to be able to manage that. Um, I was quite lucky that I didn't have a lot of social media, not maybe the back end of my career, whereas these guys now, it's constant, isn't it? I mean, we had a rule as the England side was no newspapers in the side in the um, in the dressing room in the Duncan, Fl- uh, Duncan Fletcher um, era at the start of my career. But now it doesn't matter if you have a newspaper in there, it's on your phone, isn't it? So wherever you go, you can take that with you. So I think, yeah, you're right. I think the ex- you've got to accept that actually you are under the microscope. You are going to you're there for criticism um, because if you're going to accept the good days, you have to accept the bad days. And that's part and parcel of being in the cricket. I think even for someone like Johnny, and I, I wouldn't say I always dealt with it very well. I think that until you're retired and you come out of it and you look back and actually you go, I wasted too much energy on that. I wasted too much time worrying about what other people thought about me. And actually, you can't control that. So why, why are you wasting energy on controlling stuff that, you know, and, and, it, and actually a lot of the time I always believe, uh, and now actually you come out and, you, you know, you I do a little bit, on, you do a bit on the radio, you go and see the Sky Boys. It's not personal. Sometimes you feel some of that stuff when you're not playing well can be a bit personal, but then you realise until you retire and you step out, 
none of that's personal stuff. It's just part of what this is. It's international cricket at the highest level. If you don't play well, you're going to get criticised. And I always, it, it does sometimes when I look at batters who have gone in and then they've got left out, you know, if, you're, if you don't, you know, you can't average 20 and want to keep playing for England. It's just not how it's going to be. You have to deliver with the bat and ball. When, when you're, if you're a top order batter, it's about runs. If you don't score, then someone else is going to have an, an opportunity. And I think that's the reality of the world we live in. Um, and you're always going to be judged, aren't you? I think even how great Joe Root is as a player, he still gets criticism when he doesn't score runs. I think that's just part of the... And you have to accept that's going to happen. Um, you, you shouldn't worry about what other people think. And I think that is the hardest part of being an international batsman, is you are going to fail a lot, and you have to be able to take that. And also, when you do get knocked down properly, and I, I, there's no doubt in my career, I was knocked down a few times where... Uh, you know, it took a lot to get up. It took a lot of energy to go, how am I going to get better? Right, okay, that was really bad. How am I going to get better? And it takes a, um, a lot to do that. But you're not going to succeed in international cricket if you don't have that attitude of um, getting up after you've been knocked down. How long did it take you to realise that? I mean, in your career, I mean, you played for a long time, you played well over 100 test matches. <laughs> was it only after you retired you were able to sort of have that attitude? Or was there a point yeah. in your career I could say, right, okay, I've got to shut, that out, shut all that out? Yeah, I mean, again, I tried it. Again, I, I wasn't great. At, I wasn't particularly good at, like I said, I didn't want to know what other people were saying. I, I tried to shut it out. Whether that's the right way, I think other people have different methods of doing it. I tried to just be very, okay, as long as whatever my teammates think, family, friends, right, everything else I can try and blinker out. And, and maybe actually you, you guys will tell me some of my interviews in the media will probably be very bland, sat on the fence. But that was sort of my way of nearly just trying to okay, right, let's just, it's about this team, it's about winning. And I think that's the other thing for me. I look, I look back even when you retire now, the individual stuff is great, but actually it's about the series you win as a group. You know, actually they're the special times. Um, and I'm sure most players will say that, you know. Um, and actually when you're retired, no one actually talks a lot about, it's a statistical game, isn't it? As an batsman, you always, you just care so much about your average and you want it to be up there and you're judged against the past and, and, and the present and who's doing what. And actually, when you retire, you realise, actually, why have I wasted so much time and energy? And it, it, it probably is it is that time when you step out of it and you look back and you think, yeah, I wasted a lot of time and energy on worrying about things that I should never have worried about. Well, Ian Bell was really, really interesting, actually. And I'm so glad we had him on. And I'm even more pleased we've got Sir Andrew Strauss this Thursday in the Virtual Cricket Club, worldsbestcricketclub.com. Go to that. It's £6 a month to join, but you do get four live events for that. And tell your friends as well, because we've had some real fun with that, trying them with various quizzes and uh, other questions. You can ask direct questions to our guests so it really is a worthwhile cause, and it's in aid of the Professional Cricketers Trust, the charity that supports cricketers who've fallen on hard times. So it really is a worthwhile effort, that one. So please join us on Thursday. And also, we're going to be giving you a podcast every night at the end of play in the England-Sri Lanka series. We'll be rounding up play in that Test Match series, which starts also on the 14th of Jan. So put 14th of Jan in your diaries because there's a podcast and a virtual cricket club appearance from Andrew Strauss, both on the same day. So hope you can join us for one or both of those. Thanks for listening.
Social Podcast Network.